Aren't you glad he takes the broken pieces and mends them together? He takes all things that the enemy meant for evil and turns them around for our good. One of my favorite promises of the, the Bible is Romans 8, 28. It says, for God turns all the bad things in our life and turns them around for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And I'm so thankful we have a faithful God who doesn't just leave us stranded and alone, but walks alongside of us and even carries us through the things that we endure in our lives. Uh, This week, we are in uh, week number four of our series, Back to the Basics. For those of you who are new, my name is Pastor Joey. Welcome. We're glad that you are here. And uh, what we've been doing really in this series, this teaching series, is kind of going back through the fundamental or foundational principles or values that we really set to build within our church, things that we want to cultivate or have guide the very framework or uh, um, uh, idea of where our ministries are going to go and what we'd like to see people experience when they gather with Vertical Life Church. In Acts chapter 2, we see about 2,000 years ago, really, the church be unleashed into the world. Jesus Christ dies and rises again, and we have Resurrection Sunday, and then he sends the Holy Spirit to empower his church. He rises to heaven, and he unleashes the church into the world. And what we see in that early church is those believers are filled with the Spirit of God, they begin to kind of develop a community amongst themselves, and they begin to share their faith with those around them, and they begin to really transform the world. We're here today because of that first event on the day of Pentecost. There are many things in our culture that we experience today, many phrases and and terms and words that we use that come directly from the Bible because Jesus Christ and through his followers have made a big impact on the world stage. And so as we were uh, kind of praying through and, and studying what the church was supposed to be like, where, you know, was it just we're supposed to have this big building and everyone was to come to church and on, on Sunday and have a religious experience, or was there something more, something greater, something deeper? And as we looked in Scripture, we saw really six core values or six principles, six things that kind of describe this early church, and we decided to try to pattern our life or our ministry after these six core values. And so we've been discussing these over the course of this teaching series. And if uh, this is your first week with us, uh, you can catch up with us online on our website at www.blchurch.tv, as well as there might be some of you that might not be here with us physically, but are watching at home online on YouTube. You can also uh, catch up with us on YouTube. We do podcast and stream the service live, and uh, it's available there for you as well. Well, to set the stage for what we're talking about today and the core value we're discussing today, we're going to be in Matthew chapters 9 and 10 mostly. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there uh, right now and you can flip through Matthew. It's the very first book of the New Testament. If you have your digital version, you can navigate there on your, de- your smart device. Um, if you have a dumb device, then the words will be on the screen for you. So um, it'll be there so everyone can follow along. As well as in our, your worship guide, there's a space to take notes. So if you're a note taker, then uh, you have the ability to do that as well. But in Matthew chapter 9, 
In verses 1 through 31, if you were to read that, you are going to see Jesus at his best doing ministry. He's going around from place to place, town to town. He is teaching. He's healing. He's healing many who are are bogged down with infirmities, many sicknesses, illnesses, and the like, doing some very miraculous things. When you get to verse 32, you see really the culmination or the core of his ministry, which was spiritual warfare. Jesus came to put an end to the works of the devil. And so he came to not just heal sickness, but heal the root cause of the sickness, which were the spiritual forces at work in this world. And in verse 32, we see him cast a spirit out of a mute man. That spirit had bound his mouth so he couldn't speak. And Jesus removed that spirit and healed the man so he was able to speak and rejoice and declare the glory of God. In verses 34 through 35, we see him leave this this encounter with this demon-possessed man, and he continues to go through all the villages and the towns, healing and teaching, freeing those oppressed by the devil. And in verse 36, this is where we're going to start today, in chapter 9, verse 36, Jesus, as he's doing this ministry, he's going from place to place, he kind of stops, and he looks at how even though he's done all this ministry, he's been to all these places, the crowd keeps showing up. People are like pouring out of the woodwork. They're coming from everywhere. People wanting to be healed. People having needs, spiritual needs and physical needs. In verse 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Let's pray right there. Father in heaven, God, as we open your word, God, take me off of the stage. Let only you and what you have to say today be declared today. God, we are thankful that you have given us the word, which is the sword of the spirit. It is our weapon against the enemy, God. It teaches us to know what is right and wrong. It teaches us um, how to uh, correct things in our lives and to, have, to live for your honor and for your glory, to live a life that will be blessed by you and, and work alongside of you, God. So we thank you for your word. And we ask you now, as we look at the, the, the teaching of your word, we look at the example of Christ. God, that we would be pierced in our hearts in the places that we might have been living outside of your will or we've not been living in step with you. Because just as Christ looked out into the crowd and declared the harvest is great, we know that the harvest is truly great. There is a lot of need. And so, God, we just pray that that would be resonating in our hearts as we each look inside to see what kind of of disciple of Christ we have been. And this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the harvest is great, but the workers are few. When you look out into the harvest and you see the human harvest, this is uh, the calling the harvest is synonymous with the crowd of people. He's looking at the crowd and he's calling them a great harvest. And when you look at the human harvest, that should incite compassion. That should incite compassion. When you see the needs of the people, not just physical needs, but spiritual needs, that should pierce your heart and incite compassion. But there's really kind of two responses. There's the religious response. You see, the religious people, they will look out on the crowds as they did all through Scripture. You can see uh, there the religious will look on the crowds in condemnation. 
can't believe they're dressing like that. I can't believe they're listening to that kind of music. Why would they drink that? Why would they go to that place? Why, you know, their life is obviously jacked up. They probably did some pretty nasty things with their life, and they deserve that. That's just judgment from God. You know, the religious will look at people, and they'll size them up. They'll judge them and say, well, man, that's, that's rough. You know, they're, they're, they probably deserve what's coming to them. But the righteous will look on the crowds as Jesus did with compassion. They won't look at the drug addict and say, well, they just deserve what they decided to do. They deserve the ramifications for those choices. No, the righteous will look at them and say, they need an encounter with Christ. They need to be delivered. There's a need there that they need because the righteous, when they look at the crowd, they don't see the law, they don't see the rules, they see the need. And what the righteous realize is there is more need than any one person can meet. Think about it. Here is Jesus. He's God in the flesh, right? The fullness of God contained in one person. And we know that Jesus kind of uh, limited himself in his human form so that he could be our sacrifice, so he could experience life as we do. He could be tempted just like us and yet go about with no sin. And in Jesus' limited form, here is God-man, the God-man or man on earth. He's looking at these crowds, and as God, he could take care of all the needs instantly. He could. As God, but in his human form, he had limited himself. And so he's looking on these, the crowds and with all these needs, and he's looking at all the need that's there. And it, he's saying, you know what? This is too much for me to even deal with on my own. There is more need than even I can get to. That's why there was so much compassion, because he realized the desperation or the desperate place that these people were in. He said they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And there was only one man at that time that could do anything about it. The righteous will realize there is more need than any one person can meet. And two, they'll understand or they'll recognize there is more need than any one church can meet. You wonder why there's more than one church in a city. Well, think of our church. Think about the needs just among our people. And then take a look down the street, down the road. There is more need than even our own church can meet. So recognizing there's more need than any one person can meet, there's more need than even his group of people, his followers, what could be representative of the early church there even before he unleashed the church in Acts chapter 2, recognizing there's more need than one person could meet, more need than one church could meet. In verse 38, this is what Jesus says as he turns to his disciples. He says, so pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. Ask him for more. There's more need than we can handle. Ask him for more workers. You see, that compassion that filled the Lord's heart, that compassion that rises up in the righteous, according to the Lord, should move us to pray to God to raise up more people for the harvest to raise up more workers, for God to raise up people that he can use to meet the needs of those who are far from him. The reality is that the workers represent followers of Christ. You might ask why. It's because followers of Christ are workers. The followers of Jesus Christ are workers. You cannot be a follower of Christ and not be a worker in the field. You can't do it. 
And see, immediately in the very next chapter, what we have to understand, when the Bible was originally written, there were no chapter markings, there were no verse markings. Those were all added later. They were written as like one long letter uh, to the people that they were originally written for. And here, as we end chapter 9, as Jesus in verse 38 is asking his disciples to pray that God would send more workers, the very next verse in, in chapter 10, verse 1, kind of flows right out of that. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, after he asked his disciples to pray, this is what it says. It says, he called his 12 disciples together. He gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. Skip down to verse number 5. It says, Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Give as freely as you have received. What I find interesting here in this passage is that Jesus immediately, those whom he asks to pray are the very same he then calls. Those he asked to pray, ask God, who's the master, the Lord of the harvest, send more workers. Those he asked to pray are the very same he calls to then go. Jesus tells the disciples to pray, and immediately Jesus drafts them into his service. And the first question I have for you today, church, as we're looking at this passage, this first question I have is that when you look out into the world, what do you see? Or do you even see the crowd? When you look out into the world, do you even see the crowd? Do you even see the harvest? And if you do, what do you see? Do you see condemnation or do you see compassion? Do you see condemnation or do you see compassion? If you see the crowd and you see compassion, are you then praying that the Lord of the harvest would raise up more workers to meet the need. If you see the crowd and you see compassion, are you then praying for the God of heaven to raise up more workers? If the answer is no, then maybe it's because you're afraid to pray because you know if you pray, he's going to call. You know, if you pray, God, send, send someone into the field, send someone to go meet that need, you know what he's going to do. He's going to call. See, the truth is, Jesus doesn't want to send others. He wants to send you. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to send others into the field. You don't get to phone in your Christian service and your Christian life and your Christian faith. He wants to send you into the harvest. He asks you to pray so that you will connect with his heart as you are praying for the harvest and be moved with such a holy compassion for the souls of people who have no hope, who are lost, who are separate from God, who are in desperate in need of a life-transforming encounter with the Son of God. He wants you to get a hold of that compassion and say, I'm going to go. Send me. Before we planted this church, my wife and I were in worship ministry. We were 
worship directors at a, at a local church here in the area, and this was our second ministry now we were part of that was starting to have difficulty and, and struggle. And towards the end of our time where we knew that the writing was on the wall, we were going to be uh, in ministry there much longer, uh, God had kind of laid on my heart that I needed to start looking for another job. And so I did what you know ministers do. They start sending out resumes to other ministries they, they've heard of. They start contacting, you know, contacts in their network, making connections, trying to figure out, are there places open? Is there a place I could audition to try to find a job? And so I began to do that. I began to send out resumes to other churches. And uh, there was a church in Boston uh, uh, called Grace Grace uh, Church and that responded, and I got to talk to the pastor. And it was interesting because their church was actually in the very city I was born, in Stoughton, Massachusetts. And so I thought, oh, that's kind of a weird thing. Their church is like my hometown. So, you know, that kind of connection there. So I thought maybe God was leading us to go out to Boston. And so uh, as I was talking with the pastor, he invited my wife and I to come out and lead worship for the weekend just to kind of audition and see what kind of fit uh, we were going to be with the church and what the church kind of fit was going to be with us. And we had a great time out there. And uh, one night while we were out to dinner with the pastor and his wife, just the four of us, we started asking them, you know, how did you guys plant the church? Because they planted their church. They were, I think, uh, several years in, and they were running 900 and some people. And it was just a fantastic ministry. And, and they began to tell us this story of how he was working at a local Bible college. And, you know, they were living in the area, and they noticed there were no Bible-preaching, Bible-believing churches in the area. There were a few Catholic churches, but that was about it. There was a lot of religion, but there wasn't any true Bible-believing evangelical churches. And, and so they began praying, God, send somebody to plant a church in this area. This area needs a church. The gospel needs to be preached. Send somebody to raise up a church here. And as they began to pray together over time, people began to speak in their life. They had students that were uh, in their classes saying, you know, if you ever started a church, we would love to, you know, start one with you or we would go with you wherever you would want to go. And, and, and the pastor, he was kind of dismissive. He's like, I'm not even pastor material. I don't even like to read. Pastors have to read. I don't even like to read. And I was like, you know what? Me too. I don't think I cracked a book since college, you know. So, you know, we had this in common. And his wife and, and him were kind of telling us about all the doubts and fears and things that they had. Oh, not us. And, 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 but God's going to send somebody. We believe God's going to send somebody. And then they said, then, then there was a point where as they were praying, they looked at each other and they said, you know what? We keep praying for God to send somebody, but he's a pretty powerful God. Why not us? Why not us? Why not take that step of faith and do what we think is impossible because with God, all things are possible? Why not us? And that story resonated with my wife, not me. Because I wanted to be like Pastor Sean was. I wanted to be like, I can't do that. There's no way. I've only preached twice my entire life, didn't go to school to be a pastor, barely squeaked out of college, and have a huge fear of public speaking. So I will just dismiss myself from that and keep looking for the music job. And so it was, it was a period of time as we were kind of, you know, battling this back and forth that we were, we were talking, we were sharing with each other. And, and Tony, my wife, keeps bringing it up. She's like, you know what? That just has really stuck with me. You know, they're like, they didn't feel like that was right for them, but why not us? Why not us? And so we began to pray. And, you know, when you begin to pray, you know it's already locked in. 
You know it's already locked in. That's kind of like our last-ditch effort to say, God, if there's any other way, just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, you know? When you begin to pray, you know it's locked in. You know God's calling you. You've got that deep in your heart, and it's a, a scary and excited thing all at the same time. But when we began to pray, our verbiage in our communication went from, we could never do that, to, you know, why not us? Why not us? And so we say, God, we don't know what we're doing. We have no experience, very little training, but we believe you can do all things. And so we'll take this journey with you. And we began to seek out people to join our leadership team and go through this process with us. But, you know, because of the story of that pastor and his wife in Massachusetts, we have the beginning of our story of Vertical Life Church. Their prayers moved them from God send someone to why not us, which led Tony and I from a place of doubt to God, why not us? You know, but this process has not been without its battles. This process hasn't been super easy in a, in a cakewalk. No, being a worker in the harvest, being a worker in the harvest field of the Lord is not for the faint of heart. It's less like gardening, and it's more like warfare. It's more like war. See, Jesus didn't send his disciples out to go prune some plants when he called them. No, he sent them out to do battle against the enemy. He gave them power and authority to heal the sick, to cast out demons. Jesus didn't send his disciples to just to go, you know, kind of nonchalantly figure out a way to tell people about Jesus. No, he sent them out on a mission. You see, to be a follower of Jesus is to be in the Lord's army. It's to be in the Lord's army. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, Paul tells the church of Corinth, he says, we're human, but we don't wage war as humans do. This is a, an ideology of warfare, and it's important that every follower of Christ thinks of themselves as a soldier in the Lord's army, that we are in a war, that we are in the army of the Lord. And see, God's army is not full of physical warriors, but of spiritual warriors. We are spiritual warriors. We don't fight like humans do. We use God's divine weapons for the tearing down of strongholds. We use the mighty weapons of God for we are spiritual warriors in the Lord's army. But just like the military in the Lord's army, there is a high cost of membership. In Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, records this. It says, as they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, are you sure you understand what you're asking for? You're asking to follow me, yet I'm homeless. I have no place. Are you sure that that's what? It's not a comfortable thing to be a follower of the Lord. Verse 59 Jesus said to another person, come follow me. The man agreed, but then he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But then Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. See, being a follower of Jesus Christ is not a passive thing. 
To be a follower of Jesus is to be the one that answers the call to be in his service. And the same is with every serviceman and every servicewoman in our armed forces in the United States military who answer the call to enlist. They have a duty and an expectation. And the same is true for the follower of Christ who answers the call and enlists into the Lord's army. We too have a duty and an expectation. In Luke chapter 9, verse 60, Jesus clarifies the duty. He says, but Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. But your duty is to what? Go and preach about the kingdom of God. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to enlist, if you're going to be a worker in the harvest, your duty is to go preach about the kingdom of God. The duty of every worker of the harvest, the duty of every follower of Christ is to be his witness, to preach about the kingdom of God, to declare the gospel. Jesus said this way, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is the duty. This is the core of what it is to be a Christian. And Luke verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 62 says, And then Jesus told him, Anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. In farming, the plow is arguably one of the most difficult processes in harvesting. It's what cultivates the soil to allow the harvest to be planted, to grow, and then to be reaped. And Jesus is saying here, saying once you step up to the plow, you're answering the call and there is no quit. Quitters are unfit for the Lord's service. Don't let anything stop you from starting and finishing your work out in the fields. See, the expectation of the follower of Christ for the worker in the harvest is don't delay and don't quit. That is the expectation. We have a duty and an expectation. The need is too great. Do you see the harvest? Do you see that there's more need than any one person can handle? There's more need than any one church can handle. We need you right now, not later. Don't delay and don't quit. Don't waste your time on excuses. Don't wait on trying to find a nice place to live or padding your 401k so that you can serve in comfort and in luxury. And don't wait until everything is in line and imperfect and you have no fear and doubts. Don't wait until the funeral is over to answer the call. Don't wait to meet all of your family's expectations. The need is too great and we need you right now. Don't delay and don't quit. Because the reality is, there are too few of us in the field as it is. We need all the help we can get. Our core value today, the core value that we're discussing is the value of being an unrelenting witness of Jesus Christ. As a follower of Jesus, we are to be unrelenting in our witness. The word unrelenting means not yielding in strength, severity, or determination. And as a follower of Christ, it's imperative that we view ourselves, again, as a soldier in battle and recognize that our success on the battlefield will be determined by whether or not we live up to our duty and meet our expectations. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 39 says this, says, everyone who acknowledges me publicly on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone um, who is... 
Sorry, my tablet's messing up here. It says, but everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your household. If you love your father and mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you love your son or your daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. Jesus did not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the very word of God. And we wield it each day as we work to rescue those enslaved by the enemy. You see, the minute Jesus asked us to pray for more laborers, the very next second he breathes into the call of his disciples, the call to take up, the call to be workers in the, enemy, uh, in the field to go to battle against the enemy. And we have to realize that Satan does not want to lose any ground that he has captured. The fight that we're fighting, the spiritual battle that we're fighting as harvesters or workers in the harvest is being waged on enemy territory. We're going out into the harvest field that actually is an enemy territory. And Satan will stop at nothing than to keep us from winning this war, from reaping the harvest. And there are, is going to be fallout. There's going to be things that take place, difficulties, struggles, and strains, simply by nature of this fight that we are facing. And you know, there's some of here, just like Jesus said, he said, there's going to be divisions in a family. And some of you recognize the tension that this creates. You recognize that just because you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, you've dedicated yourself to serve the Lord, there are schisms in your family just because you're obeying what God has asked you to do. There are some here today who have family members who have walked away from the Lord, creating a big divide and disconnect in your family. And there are those here that you know the call of God in your life. You know that he has called you to step out into the harvest field. But because of fear, because of life circumstances and things that have gotten in your way, you haven't even answered the call. You've stayed it back and waited. You've waited for something to go right. You've waited for everything in your life to become perfect before you could recognize God's call on your life. Whatever the case is, the enemy is actively pursuing us. He's actively trying to set up things in our lives to keep us from answering the call to go out into the harvest. And this is what is so vital, so important for the child of God, to remember that we are unrelenting witnesses of Jesus Christ, is that our duty is to preach the gospel to every creature. Our expectation is to never give up and not to delay. Because that harvest is too great. And you know, we started something last week that I think was really powerful. Last week we talked about our core value of unceasing prayer. We began to pray with each other. And it's so vital that we recognize that not only do we have a personal duty and a personal expectation, but we have a call together to be in this fight, to be in this battle together. And as unrelenting witnesses of Jesus Christ... We are not in this war alone. We are battling, we are fighting this together. And so, as we begin to close this service, as we recognize that we are 
in this together, we're going to end up going into a time of prayer like we did last week. But before we do, I want us to think about one question, and that is this. What kind of soldier have you been in the Lord's army? What kind of soldier have you been? Have you been the soldier that has stepped up to the plow and then looked back? Have you been the soldier that maybe has heard the call of God and you've stepped up to the plow, but then you said, you know what? This is too much for me. The sacrifice is too great. Have you been the soldier that's not even answered the call? Or have you been the soldier that has stepped up to the plow and have kept pushing, no matter the opposition, no matter the struggle and the strain? Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this place. In the quietness of this moment, as we recognize that the harvest is great, that there is more need than any one of us can meet on our own, God has called us into the body of the church that through together, through serving each other, encouraging one another, and then going out from this place into the world, that we could reap the harvest, that we could work together to engage people where they are and lead them to becoming fully developed followers of Jesus Christ. And in this moment, we need to truly ask ourselves, as we're looking at this core value of being an unrelenting witness, is am I answering the call? Am I living up to my duty? Am I living up to my duty as a witness for Christ? Am I sharing Jesus with my family, with my friends? Am I sharing Jesus with my coworkers? Am I engaging my spheres of influence with the gospel? Am I even inviting people to church? The early church, it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, that they were seeing the numbers added to their group daily, those that were being saved. That can only happen when the church chooses within itself to be witnesses of Christ, to be unrelenting in their sharing of the gospel and letting the love of Christ flow through them as they reach the world with the gospel of Christ. Ask yourself, have I been an unrelenting witness? Am I the soldier that has grabbed the plow with both hands and kept pushing and pushing no matter what opposition I faced? Or am I the one that looks back and says, you know what, this is too hard. This is too scary. I'm gonna leave that up for someone else. Father, in the quietness of this moment, I know that in my own heart, there have been times where I've said, you know what, that's not for me. I can't for whatever reason. It's too scary to tell my coworkers about Jesus. They'll think I'm weird. I might lose my job. I can't tell my family about Jesus. They don't believe, and I'll just push them away. There's so many excuses that we have in this life about being a witness for Christ, about giving up things that maybe we don't necessarily need, but we could utilize for your kingdom. God, there's so many reasons why we choose not to sacrifice, choose to not to put ourselves out there, choose not to surrender our lives for your service. 
God, we recognize that not everyone is called to be a pastor. Some people are called to be teachers. Some are called to be uh, administrators. Some are called to be in public service or in the private sector. God, we're all called to a different lane in the harvest. We're all called to a different role in the harvest, but each of us need to be in the harvest, on mission, fulfilling our duty and meeting our expectations so that we can see the kingdom of God come. Lord, you said through Paul in the book of Timothy that a good soldier doesn't get preoccupied with civilian affairs, that he stays focused on his mission. And it's been so easy in this nation to get preoccupied with civilian affairs, to get preoccupied with building our bank accounts, with the clothes that we wear, with our social status on social media. It's so easy to get preoccupied with, with things at work and, and in the community, God, and we lose sight of the fact that we are soldiers on mission in the harvest. And if we're not out in the field with the intentionality to reach those with the gospel of Christ, then no one else will be. The harvest is great, but the laborers are few. I pray, Father, that in this moment, as each of us look inward at what kind of soldier we've been in your army, at what kind of laborer we've been in the harvest field, we would come to terms with the truth and we would surrender our lives and surrender the things that have gotten in the way, that have distracted us, that have changed our focus, that have made us separate our church life from our everyday life. God, bring us back together so that our everyday life and our church life are one and the same that it's not what we do, but it's who we are. We are unrelenting witnesses of Jesus Christ. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you that you don't send us out into the harvest field without power and authority. God, your anointing is on your church. Those who have called on Jesus to be saved have the anointing of God to be his witnesses. You've not left us empty-handed. God, I pray against the spirits of fear, of distraction. I pray against spirits of religion that have kept us sidelined and couched on comfortable couches as we look at and watch others go out into the field. God, I pray for our church that as we live out these core values or seek to live out these core values of wholehearted worship, unyielding truth, unceasing prayer, And even today, as we look at being an unrelenting witness, God, I pray that every day we wake up, we be focused on the harvest. And when we lay our heads on our beds at night, we'd be thinking about the harvest, that we'd be raising our families to be gospel-centered and Christ-focused, and that your blessing would fall on this church, that the same could be said about Vertical Life Church that was said about that early church, that, that we enjoyed the favor of all the people, and that you are adding to our number daily those who are being saved. God, now as we go into a time of prayer, I just pray, God, that as our people pray together, that there would be great unity in our service, unity in our church. And as our requests go up, God, that your power and your glory would come down among us. In Jesus' name, amen.